Hello, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And this is Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures in Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today, Kyle, our nor- Kyle Willoughby, our usual host. You were going to say normal. <laughs> our normal host. He's the sane one. Yeah. Um, he's out today. He is on vacation in Quebec, Montreal. That sounds right. Yes. So Somewhere James, in French Canada. <laughs> yes. James has graciously accept, uh, accepted our invitation to step in. <laughs> And we are going to talk about Black Panther. Heck yeah. Uh, Black Panther is a movie set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe about T'Challa, or the Black Panther. He is the king of the fictional African nation called Wakanda. The movie takes place shortly after the events during Captain America's Civil War. T'Challa has returned to Wakanda to rule after his father's untimely death. However, outside forces threaten his claim, and he and Wakanda must contend with how they will continue to deal with the outside world. Uh, Black Panther is the 18th movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is directed by Ryan Coogler, written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole, and stars Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrera, Martin Friedman, Daniel Kaluuya, Latita Wright, Angela Bassett, Forrest Whitaker, and... Many, many more. And everybody. Everybody, everybody. made it. <laughs> uh, the movie is based on the character created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and is now being written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi. Ta-Nehisi. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, James is going to talk about Afrofuturism and a little bit about the character. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for including so much about the character in the intro because I'm going to talk the smallest amount about uh, the Black Panther comics and then get into Afrofuturism what it is, what art is Afrofuturist, and what Afrofuturism is trying to do. That sounds really interesting. And I'm going to talk about the production of this movie and Ryan Coogler, who is pretty awesome. He is, so, and is too young to be that talented. Yeah, we can talk about that too. So James, take it away. Uh, so as I said, I wanted to start with just uh, the smallest amount on Black Panther. A little note, uh, something that I heard people talking about and then clarified for myself uh, Black Panther is always associated as a comic with um, uh, uh, the militant part of the civil civil rights movement and black power, uh, which is not wrong, right? But at the same time, one should note that it did actually get written before the Black Black Panther parties uh, were being formed across the United States. Um, particularly, they didn't call their party Black Panther because of the comic, did they? No. No, unrelated. So it just uh, happened to be... Yes, it started in Alabama, actually, and then more famously kicked off in Oakland. This and that's is the, the Black the, Panther movement, the, not yes. the Black Panther comic. Yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> not the comic, but the party. That was... Uh, okay. Yeah. No, thank We're, you for clarifying, because I didn't know. Yeah, and I actually considered for my segment, for the history portion, doing a bit about the black power movement. Mm. Um, but as long as we're not doing that, it's still important to just make that clarification. Uh, As far as the comics go, I'm just going to do a little bit about the comics, and and we're going to post an article about the best Black Panther stories uh, that other people have written. So, uh, But just a a quick um, summary. The first really awesome Black Panther story is considered to be in Jungle Action Comics, The Panther's Rage. That's where the character Killmonger gets created, who's Mm. the... uh, 
antagonist in the movie. Antagonist. Played by Michael B. Jordan. Yes. Uh, and the one guy that you really need to know for writing Black Panther is Christopher Priest. Christopher Priest is why Black Panther is cool. It's why anyone was interested in him more recently. And even why Ta-Nehisi Coates would want to do the character because of the influence Christopher Priest had on the character. And of course, Ta-Nehisi Coates is the one writing Black Panther in the last couple of years. He's a best-selling author and Atlantic contributor. So that's enough about the comics. The movie is considered a piece in the genre of Afrofuturism. What is Afrofuturism? Well, it's a, Afrofuturism was a term coined in the early 90s in an essay by Mark Derry called Black to the Future. And I, it's a very short essay was and Mark it's interesting. Derry black? No, Mark Derry is not black and I had assumed he was until we looked it up. Um, so just... Interesting to note. Uh, Also interesting to note, if you want to look up Black to the Future, lots of people think that's a really fun title. So you really have to specify you're looking for Mark Derry's if you want to read that. (laughs) It's too good. It's too good. Everybody takes it. Um, Anyway, uh, what I was going to say is his definition that he coined in his article um, originally published in a series of essays called Flame Wars. And he defined Afrofuturism as a speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture. Now, he wrote that in the early 90s, and the term has expanded since then, but it's also important to note he was coining it for something that already exists. He was trying to put a word on something that had existed, you could argue, throughout the 20th century. And as we talk more about examples of Afrofuturism, you know, we'll get into exactly uh, what built up in the 70s and 80s that led him to want to put a word on it. So to simplify that, to me it sounds like it's science fiction using African culture. Not necessarily. It doesn't have to use African culture. And especially you'll notice that in Mark Derry's definition, he makes it an African-American thing. Right. Now it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be an African-American thing and actually can include much more from Africa. And the people that are considered the foundation of it, who were making work even before he came up with this definition, made a lot of connections to Africa with their work and in their thinking behind even things like their music. Uh, So... Here's another definition um, some 20 years later by Yatasha Womack, who is the author of the book The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture, which was published in 2013. She defined Afrofuturism as the intersection between black culture, technology, liberation, and the imagination. And this is an important part, skipping ahead essentially helping to reimagine the experience of people of color. And that's something we're going to get into. Uh, And why Black Panther can be Afrofuturism even when the characters are primarily African. Um, Okay, so Mark Derry defined it as African-American, but later it was defined as black culture in general. Right, and it's bigger than that. And Black Panther deals with the idea of being black across the world and also deals with the idea of the diaspora of African-Americans because of the legacy of slavery. And that's something that Afrofuturism deals with a lot, too. Uh, So the themes of Afrofuturism, if I can just do a few, when we talk about what are African-American themes in Mark Derry's definition, uh, one of them is black people as aliens, 
You can see a real easy sci-fi connection there. Black people as robots, and it is also, as um, Yatasha Womack mentioned in her definition, a reimagining of black history, mm-hmm. um, which you could almost pose as the question. Alternate history? Alternate history? What if history had gone another way? Right. And, you know, we can talk about why that's so important um, as a black person to want to try to envision that or how helpful that that could be. Uh, black people as aliens, you know, once again, we're talking about the diaspora from Africa where you are someone from a foreign land being forcibly put into another land. You are an alien. And then, you know, you can take that to the next right. sci-fi level. As a robot... Is that a slave thing? <laughs> yeah, well, it is. Uh, so a professor of Africana at Brown University, Trisha Rose, uh, talks about how a, a robot is a tool mm-hmm. for labor, for capitalism. And at one point in our history, black people in America were as well. Mark Derry brings up in one of his articles the reminder of something that we've talked about in this podcast before, where the word robot comes from. Uh, that Carol, is it Kapek? Is that how you say that? I wouldn't. Well, Kyle said it before. We'll, <laughs> we'll defer to however he said it. But in his 1920 play, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, he's getting the word robot from the word robotnik, the Czech word for slave. Okay. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So these are really easy connections right, to make. Right. Black people as aliens and black people as robots is not a big stretch to make when you start doing science fiction and using that symbolism to grapple with those concepts uh, and reimagine ways of dealing uh, mm-hmm. with them. Uh, one of the other things I, I just want to mention, which I thought was a really neat idea, just connecting that in a story, uh, if you ima- Mark Derry um, mentioned imagining Frederick Douglass and the way that he learned to read, mm-hmm. stole his literacy against the will of his masters as a way of him gaining consciousness in the same way that a, a robot, robot yes, could gain consciousness through learning about humans. Yes, and then decide, hey, it's time for the robot uprising. Right. And Frederick Douglass learning to read was the first catalyst for him trying to seek his freedom because it was how he learned that there were places where people believed that black people shouldn't be slaves. And he didn't know that that idea existed anywhere until he learned to read and read about the abolitionists. So, once again, easy connection. Uh, Easy to see how that could become something for a science fiction story with our modern understanding of robots and the themes we like to play with there. The third one I mentioned, I mentioned aliens, robots, and the reimagining of black history. What if it had gone a different way? Alternate history. Alternate history, yes. Uh, Wakanda in Black Panther is a great example of that because in the Black Panther comics and in the film that's out right now, Wakanda is an African nation that was never colonized. It Mm -hmm. never faced imperialism from an outside force. It was too powerful. It was too powerful. Its people were never made into slaves. So it doesn't have that legacy. Instead, untouched, it continued to develop. And with its bounty of natural resources and strong uh, leadership from the monarchy, the Black Panthers, uh, it is the most, at least, or at least one of the most technologically advanced nations on Earth. Uh, And that is a fun reimagining. You can imagine the appeal of that. (laughs) So 
We talked about Black Panther being Afrofuturist a little bit. What other art is Afrofuturist? Where does it come from? What was going on that made Mark Derry say, we need a word for this? Uh, one of the people that is considered a foundational, the base of the pyramid to Black Futurism, always brought up Sun Ra, the musician. Uh, an example would be his album, Space is the Place, 1973. Now, to Sounds me, great. <laughs> it's a great, great title. It sounds like a disco funk album. It's not, though. I was playing it earlier. The thing is, Space is, it's jazz. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. I listen to it. I'm like, I don't know that I I'm... guess you say it's from the 70s and you hear Space is the Place. Yeah, yeah, you're thinking techno, that kind of thing, which there is Afrofuturist techno, but Space is the Place to me sounded a bit more traditional. Disco, not techno. Yeah. Um... But Sun Ra has some really interesting ideas that were behind his music and that he brought up in Black Studies classes that we'll get to later. Another example, the film The Brother from Another Planet. That's from 1984, directed by John Sayles. That's a film in which an alien who resembles a black man and is mute is chased through the streets of Harlem by uh, space bounty hunters. <laughs> you get it. You get it. <laughs> um Octavia Butler, the author, is also brought up as foundational, like Sun Ra is, to the idea of what uh, Afrofuturism is. Her book, Dawn, the first book in the Xenogenesis trilogy, is actually going to become a television series directed by Ava DuVernay. I have heard about that. Yeah, and she's uh, Ava DuVernay is directing A Wrinkle in Time that's going to be coming out soon and we'll be talking about on the podcast in the future. Uh, another example, real easy to get, uh, 1993's milestone comic created by Dwayne McDuffie and M.D. McBride called Icon. And this is about a character who, much like Superman, is an alien that crashes as a baby and lands in the United States on planet Earth, but it's in 1839. And the alien baby imitates the first creature it sees, which is a slave woman, and so it takes on that appearance, and it's a black male that then grows up with Superman's super strength, flight, and vulnerability. Wow. Yeah. That those, sounds awesome. And real intriguing, doesn't it? Because you get to see him grow up from 1839 into present day and deal with being a black man in America who has superpowers, which is like Luke Cage, Luke Cage, but more extreme. The Marvel superhero. Another Marvel superhero. Yeah. Who is black. Which we've talked about before in a prior episode. So, uh, on the music tip, a couple more musicians, and then we'll be done with talking about uh, what art is Afrofuturist, our examples. If you don't want to listen to Sun Ra's jazz from the 70s, you can listen to Outkast's <laughs> hip-hop from the 90s. Aquemini is an example of Afrofuturism. That's an album Outkast did in 1998. What makes music Afrofuturism? Well, in this case, they're calling themselves Atlians, which they also have an album of. That's Atlanta Aliens. <laughs> Pretty fun. Now your album's Afrofuturist. And now the big example musically, and I say big example musically, she's not considered foundational to Afrofuturism like Sun Ra because, you know, she's more modern. She wasn't doing this in the 70s and teaching classes. But she is bringing up how the word Afrofuturism in in interviews and talking about how it influences her work and how she strives to make Afrofuturist work. And that's Janelle Monet. You know, she is the person that I knew was worked in worked in Afrofuturism, produced Afrofuturist work. Right. She's, that's, she's the person, the only one I could have named off the top of my head. Right. And that a lot of articles give her a lot of credit for making Afrofuturism a more mainstream term as a way of referring to a genre. 
um, because of the work she does and because she talks about it. So here's an example, real fun. You can go watch her music video, Many Moons, from her song Many Moons, on her album Metropolis Suite One, The Chase, which came out in 2008. And in that, you've got the uh, Android auction. Once again... You get it right. <laughs> They're auctioning off androids. Well, you know, one of them is the Janelle Monet model. Slaves, everybody gets it. Um, and just a quote from Janelle Monet talking about it, because it applies to more than just black people, and Afrofuturism has become something that uh, has relevance to many kinds of people because of this. She said, when I speak about science fiction in the future and androids, I'm speaking about the other, the future form of the other. Androids are the new black, the new gay, or the new women. And that's why Afrofuturism, even if it is uh, especially relevant to black people, is relevant for everyone because everyone is some kind of other. At one point or another, it's relevant to a lot of people. And there's a lot of, I think, white children in America who feel other. other. Yeah. Um, And Afrofuturism can appeal to them as well. So uh, that said... I want to finish my segment by talking about what Afrofuturism is hoping to achieve. Uh, Yatasha Womack, who I mentioned, wrote that big book on uh, black sci-fi and fantasy in 2013 on what Afrofuturism is now, talks about how racism can give you the impression that all you've ever been is a slave or that all you are in the present is a person that can be abused by the police. And it's hard to chart a positive present and positive future when that's your idea of yourself. That's the story that you have been told about yourself. And the reimagining part of Afrofuturism is saying, what if that didn't have to be my story? What if I had another story and I could see that and tell that and that could inform my present by reaching for that? Wow. Oh, Afrofuturism has a... It's a heavy thing. <laughs> it's a heavy thing what, what inspires it and what it's trying to do. And I said I would get back to Sun Ross, and now I am, and I want to actually do a direct quote um, from an Afro-American Studies 198, the Black Man in the Cosmos class that he taught. This is a quote from a lecture from that, and I got this from a Vulture article by Ashley Clark. Sun Ross said in this lecture, I'm thinking about the future of black Egypt which is outside of the realm of history. History has been very unkind to black people. So actually what I'm always talking about is the myth. And nothing that has ever been is part of what I'm talking about because I'm saying that black folks need a mythocracy instead of a democracy because they're not going <laughs> because they're not going to make it in anything else. They're not going to make it in history. That is so dark. Yes, yes it is. Um, but I'd like to end on notes of optimism because that's really at the heart of Afrofuturism, even though it can show dark dystopian alternatives for the future and black people's place in the future. Overall, liberation is a part of it, as you know, I mentioned in uh, Yatasha Womack's definition earlier. Um, so I want to uh, quote Samuel R. Delaney and I want to quote Mark Derry. Mark Derry first. Hope is a speculative fiction. And the Samuel R. Delaney quote will be from his essay, The Necessity... That's dark, too. Hope is a speculative fiction. <laughs> I guess. 
<laughs> okay. It can be, but we engage with hope in our lives in a positive way and to think that like, oh, when you write speculative fiction, you could be writing hope. And when you read it, you could be reading hope. I think that's beautiful. I found it uplifting. Claire's turned it on me. Um, in Samuel R. R. Delaney's essay, The Necessity of Tomorrow, Tomorrow's, we need images of tomorrow, and our people need them more than most. Without an image of tomorrow, one is trapped by blind history, economics, and politics beyond our control. And nothing gives such a profusion and richness of images of our tomorrows, however much they may need to be revised, as science fiction. Yeah. That's my positive end to my segment. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you talk about being able to express your thoughts or express things that are dangerous um, and science fiction being an outlet for things that you can't necessarily say out loud because it's either too dangerous or too scary um, or too un- unimaginable, mm-hmm. you know, and the importance of science fiction because of that. And we talk about that a lot on the podcast. Yes. And I feel like you could say that's a part of Afrofuturism. Yes. That was really interesting, James, and very sad. <laughs> it's meant to be uplifting. It's, you know, it's part of why Black Panther is an important movie, if it's nothing else. It, yeah. Well, I'm going to move on to not, I think, a more a more uplifting segment where I talk about getting this movie made. Cool. Uh, let's start uh, in the beginning, um, in the 90s. And Wesley Snipes wanted to play the role of Black Panther. He worked on a script, and he met with directors, but it never took off. Um, People weren't really interested in producing a black superhero movie, even though Blade had been a success, the first successful superhero movie. I, Well, again, that can be argued because you have Christopher Reeves' Superman and Batman, but we'll we'll say it was one of the first Mm -hmm. successful superhero movies. So then Disney buys Marvel. And they first created a world for their most popular characters in the comics. Well, uh, their second most popular characters. The most popu- <laughs> popular characters that they owned yes. because Sony owned Spider-Man and Fox owned the X-Men and the Fantastic Four. So at the time, now uh, Disney owns most of those again. Or not again. They just own everything. So there is um, – they made Iron Man and the Hulk first. Now, Kevin Feige, who is the head of Marvel Studios, said that they always wanted to do a Black Panther movie. And they kept on bringing up references to him um, in the earlier uh, Marvel films. Um, So some examples would be that I didn't even notice. I know. I want to know what these are. Um, So at the end of Iron Man 2, when Nick Fury is discussing the Avengers initiative with Tony Stark, they're in a secret S.H.I.E.L.D. warehouse. And there's a map of Africa there with um, Wakanda being pointed out. Um, And then in Age of Ultron, which is the second Avengers movie, they talk about Vibranium and Bruce Banner, the the scientist who turns into the Hulk, mispronounces Wakanda. Um, I probably did notice that at the time, but I didn't notice they were adding up. So and then he was brought into Captain America Civil War, and that sped up the process of him getting his own movie. Now, uh, Marvel says the reason he was brought into Civil War was because they needed a character who owed no allegiance to Tony Stark or Captain America. He had his own agenda, his own country, his own agency. 
And somebody to be in sweet, sweet fight scenes. Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, and a different fight, uh, fighting style than anyone else. Yeah. Now, when they were casting Black Panther, Marvel executives apparently only thought of Chadwick Boseman for the role. And this is based on his other work in 42 and Get On Up. I was going to say, because he's the man and also their imaginations are limited. <laughs> um, so he apparently, they thought of him and then 24 hours later... They called his agent, and he was actually on the press tour in Zurich for Get On Up. And he tells the story in an interview, and I'll link to it. But basically, he said he was on the red carpet. He got a call from his agent on the red carpet, and apparently his agent was like, we have Marvel on the phone. Um, you need to take this call. And he's like, <laughs> Jeez. I'm at a premiere. Oh. He's like, well, you need to get off. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nothing so, matters. <laughs> and then he had to like get driven around in a car because it was a secret conversation. And he said he'd been putting the idea that he wanted to play Black Panther out into the universe. How? Um, How? You know, In his just, journal? Like, mentioning it. You know, I don't know, but I guess... Mar- the- i got to start saying stuff at parties. <laughs> um, so Marvel called him and said, when he was talking to the Marvel, was saying, so there's a character that we think you're interested in. If you were to get offered the role of this character, would you take it? And then he said he was like, well, if it's the character that I think you're talking about, then yes. I mean, like, and he says, like, it could have been Popeye. Like, I don't know. Oh, my goodness, yeah. But anyway, so... doing a new take on Falcon. You've heard of him, right? (laughs) So he got the role without even auditioning. Um... And he said he went to a local comic book shop to buy back issues. It was one of the first things he did. And actually, when you listen to him talk in interviews, he knows the character. Like, one interviewer was trying to quiz him and, like, see if they could catch him on something he didn't know. How dare you? And he just was like, they were quizzing the whole cast. Yeah. And Chadwick Boseman knew everything. Good for him. So now I'm going to move on and talk about Ryan Coogler, who is the director. Um, he is from Oakland. Uh, Yay, East Bay. And he said he grew up loving comics. He first loved the X-Men, but he also wanted superheroes who looked like him. He's black. And when he visited his local comic book shop, he asked if there was there were any black superheroes. And the comic, uh, the comic book shop guy gave him Black Panther. So let's move forward. He is on scholarship at St. Mary's College, which is so random. Because one of my best friends went there and is Ryan Coogler's age. Yeah, well, we're Ryan Coogler's age. Right. That's the thing. And I'm I'm guessing that when he picked up Black Panther... You he was a kid. He was a kid? It was probably Christopher Priest. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she's out of the country right now, but I need to ask, like, did you have any classes with this guy? Because it's a really small university. Um, he was there on a football scholarship, and he took a creative writing class. In the creative writing class, he wrote a story about the time his father almost bled to death in his arms. His professor called him in and asked him what he wanted to do with his life. He said he maybe wanted to become a football player, but if that didn't work out, become a doctor, be a positive influence in his community. And this professor told him that he should become a screenwriter because he could reach more people that way. What a wild idea. (laughs) (laughs) At St. Mary's, this professor at St. Mary's. You want to help people, don't be a doctor. Be a screenwriter. My goodness. Kugler said he thought she was crazy, but... He couldn't get the idea out of his head. St. Mary's canceled its football program. And I kind of remember when this happened as well. I remember my friend telling me. And so he went to Sacramento State and became a finance major on a football scholarship. And he said 
Even though he was a finance major, he took every film class he could. And by the time he graduated, he loved filmmaking. One of his professors told him about USC Film School, which is one of the best grad film schools in the United States, at least probably in the world. I assume in the world. That's California Pride maybe talking, but I believe you. Yeah, I think, well, no, it's USC and NYU. Yeah, I think yeah. are the top film schools. So he said it was either go there or play football, but his chances at football weren't that great. He said he wasn't quite fast enough, wasn't quite tall enough. Um, so he got into USC and he drove to L.A. He actually lived out of his car for the first semester. But he made a series of short films, and this caught the attention of Forrest Whitaker, and I guess Forrest Whitaker called him in and he said, what kind of story would you like to tell? And he told him the idea for the movie that would eventually become Fruitvale Station. And uh, Forrest Whitaker financed it. And Fruitvale Station was his first film. It was about the last 24 hours of Oscar Grant's life. For those who don't know, Oscar Grant was a young, unarmed black man shot by a white police officer while coming home from San Francisco on New Year's Eve. Um, it was also one of the first time that a police shooting was caught on camera. It was when cell phones were just starting to have cameras and uh, the ability to, to take videos on them. And where everybody has it, yeah. Right, so they could document that. Um, this movie made a name for him. This is when I heard of him. Um, it won the Sundance Grand Jury and Audience Prize in 2013. So what this movie did for him is it got him Creed. Uh, Which is also funny because you mentioned him living out of his car while mm -hmm. going to school. I think there was a point in Sylvester Stallone's life where he was living out of his car Maybe that's when he was how riding Rocky. He uh, got Stallone to do the movie or got the movie. They he under they bonded in that way. So uh, we both worked harder than James Foley ever has, right? Of course, we need to do something. <laughs> um, he co-wrote Creed with his friend Aaron Covington, and it was actually uh, Coogler's idea to focus on Adonis Johnson, Apollo Creed's son, and let Rocky be the trainer. So Creed then was a huge success, brought him to the next level. Also brought somebody else to the next level, I feel like, too, who he had in Fruitvale Station as well. Oh, yeah, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. yeah. Michael B. Jordan, I think he had already gotten the Fantastic Four uh, from Fruitvale Station, though. Oh, really? Yeah, which didn't do well, and I don't think it hurt his career. I but haven't seen any of the Fantastic Four movies. Yeah, I've heard they're not worth it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, Creed was made for $35 million and it grossed $173 million and it basically reinvigorated the Rocky franchise for Warner Brothers. It made me feel all the feelings. Yeah, I heard you cried. <laughs> I didn't. I, who said that? Did you say that? I didn't. I never said that. I, I don't know. People talk. <laughs> um, well, a lot of good men cried at Creed, all right? A lot of good men. While filming Creed, he got a call from Nate Moore, who at the time and might still be the only African-American producer for Marvel. And he had just seen Fruitville Station, and he thought Coogler would be a really good fit for Black Panther. So Coogler said even though he had always dreamed of making a superhero movie, he was wary of taking the job because of Marvel's reputation of being tough on directors. And this was a much bigger project than Creed. He eventually met with Moore and Kevin Feige, and he said he really liked them. He said from the beginning, he was super clear that he wanted to bring a strong message about colonization and the worst parts of colonization or slavery and the effect that it had on young black people. And he said that from the beginning, Marvel was game for that. Also, he said that Marvel brought ideas to him that he was excited about that he hadn't thought of. And that made him want to work with them, too. Like really? the idea of making like a black, um, a James Bond 
type theme going. And he, yeah. he was like, oh, I thought it was brilliant. And you don't want to work with people who are just saying yes to your ideas. You want to work with people who are bringing ideas to you as well. Mm-hmm. So I thought that sound, that's really cool. Like yeah, that spoilers, he, that's a cool scene. <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Um, so he accepted the job, and one of the first things he did was take a trip to Africa because he had never been, and he wanted to see what it meant to be African in the 21st century so he could better depict it on screen. He and Joe Robert Cole uh, co-wrote uh, the movie together, and they said they wanted to make the movie they wished they had when they were little, which was a superhero who was black. And they wanted to explore the dialogue between African-Americans and Africa. And one other thing he said, which I thought was super interesting and kind of fits in well with our podcast, um, was that he believes that, Kugler believes that comic book movies are our current society's culture and myth-making. So by creating Black Panther, he is creating a new myth or expanding on a myth. And Sun Ra said, we need a mythology. A mythocracy. There it is. <laughs> a myth- mythocracy. Uh, so he's following in Sun Ra's footsteps or doing as he said he should do. He's doing his part. Um, I'm going to really, really briefly and probably really poorly talk on about the um, Black Panther soundtrack. And I want to uh, – I'm doing this for Kyle because <laughs> Kyle was so excited about this soundtrack. And um, he – a while ago when he thought he was going to be able to do it, he was he, – he, this is what he wanted to talk about with the Black Panther soundtrack more than anything else. Yeah. So, Kyle, if you want to, like, write something up and post it uh, for what I uh, – explaining what I missed, please do. But um, Kendrick Lamar, who is considered one of the greatest rappers, I think, of all time, one of the greatest rappers in the game right now. Definitely that. I didn't know he was being considered for all-time status. Yeah, I think he's on his way. Okay. Um and he, he's younger. But anyway, uh, he curated the soundtrack. Um, and Kugler said he'd been a fan of Lamar's ever since his mixtapes and had been trying to track him down for years. Eventually, they sat down and Kugler told him how much his music had affected him. And they decided that if they have had an opportunity, uh, they would want to work together. So when Black Panther rolled around, Lamar had just finished working on his album, Damn, which did very well. So they talked and decided that Kendrick would come do a couple songs on the Black Panther soundtrack. And apparently Marvel was very supportive of this. Why wouldn't you be when one of the greatest rappers currently rapping wants to, you know, hottest rappers, I should say, as well, wants to work on your soundtrack. Um, Especially when you think about, I don't know if you're about to say this, the way Marvel isn't known for its music and its movies, as Kyle has talked about on the podcast before. Right. Um, and instead of just doing a few songs, apparently he saw a bit of the movie and was like, no, I'm going to do the whole thing. Um, so he produced and curated the Black Panther album with Anthony Top Dog Tiffith. Um, I'm sure I've embarrassed myself by saying that. Um, and he really tried to bring in artists from all over the world. The soundtrack is number one on the Billboard chart. It's the biggest for first week of an album since the Suicide Squad soundtrack. We're recording this about two weeks after the movie came out. And the soundtrack came out before then. It is still on top of the Billboard charts. So it has done very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've listened to it a ton. I know you have. Yeah. Actually, I was before I came in here, uh, I could hear uh, the street um, street noise. Um, and I could hear the uh, one of the songs from the soundtrack just blasting on the street. So it's everywhere. Yeah. I'm also going permeating to— Permeating our culture right now. <laughs> yeah. Black Panther is permeating the culture. Uh, speaking of that, I'm going to also talk about, um, just briefly, about some of the worst 
things that have come out of Black Panther, which is some of the horrible people that, have, of course, have surfaced when a black superhero movie comes out. There was an alt-right Facebook fan group which took credit for the attack against The Last Jedi uh, film, and they said they didn't like that film because it introduced more female characters into the Star Wars universe. Who wants that? Um, so they tried to sabotage its rating on Rotten Tomatoes. and they Sabotage they, the— um, Last Jedi's rating on okay. Rotten Tomatoes, and they were calling people to do the same for Black Panther. The page is called Down With Disney's Treatment of Franchises and Its Fanboys. Uh, Facebook has removed the page and the event, and Rotten Tomatoes said it was aware of the plan and would block any users engaging in hate speech in the comments. Um, back to something more positive yeah. than the, um, some of the worst people coming out of the woodwork. Um this is the first time that a major studio has greenlit a black superhero movie with an African-American director and a primarily black cast. And just if you get an idea of the hype around it, I knew people were excited about it. Um, I didn't realize, I guess I did realize how big it was. In May 2016, the hashtag Black Panther So Lit started trending on Twitter when casting details were coming out. And I feel like that hashtag has gone like up and down, trending ever since. Mm. Um, so you may ask, did it live up to the expectations? <laughs> is, did, it is it so worth, lit? Yeah. Is it so lit? Did <laughs> did Marvel make good on its investment? Um, do you have a guess? Oh, I think we know. <laughs> yeah, it um, brought in two hundred and forty-one million dollars in its opening weekend, which is the biggest February opening on record. It almost doubled financial expectations. And the expectations is, were high. They were very high. Second biggest domestic debut ever. It's the top-grossing film directed by a black director in history. Um, we're recording this again, like I said, uh, after it's been out for two weeks. It has the top second weekend of all time. It's actually tied with Jurassic Park for that title and right behind The Force Awakens. It had a 47% decline in audience, uh, audience, what's it called? Attendance. Attendance, that's the word. Um, and I know that doesn't sound great, but it's actually one of, one of the lowest ever for a superhero movie and one of the lowest for a film with a budget bigger than $200 million. So far, it has a global haul of $704 million. It's going to make a billion dollars um, and be one of, like, the 20-some films that ever has. Um, as far as stats go, it has a 96 score on Rotten Tomatoes and an audience score of 76. So some of those fanboys are able to lower the rating. Which Not fan, Mar uh, whatever, Marvel fanboys they call themselves. Probably lowered the rating a bit there. You give Marvel fanboys a bad name. That's not, you know, what the average Marvel fan is. It's in, I know its Cinescore rating was was fantastic, you know, uh, when they pulled people coming out of the film. Yeah. But um, what do we think of it? I thought it was good. I thought it was really good. And I got to say, I've been telling everyone, uh, I mean, since the first trailer came out, I've been scared for if it... Not just good, because I thought it would be good. Marvel movies at this point are generally good, and, and Ryan Coogler is a good director. I don't know how he's that good when he's younger than me. It hurts my feelings. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that right now. I just I want to say that I had faith that it would be good, but the thing for me was, okay, is this going to be good enough that for the pressure that's on it, for the people that will root against it, for the people who don't want to try to put a black person in a lead whose name isn't Will Smith, and try to sell it globally. Like, is it gonna is it gonna hit those benchmarks? You had this idea that it wasn't gonna do well globally. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. I mean, okay. Let's go back to. I'm um, okay. So, 
Wonder Woman, right? Mm -hmm. It's made a lot of money globally, but when you look where it's made its money, it's had to really make money in some places to make up for the fact that it does not make so much in others. I mean, Wonder Woman came out around the— I think it was also banned in some countries. Okay, Russia is an example. I think it was within a year of of Wonder Woman coming out there, not related to Wonder Woman, but the DOMA, the Russian Congress, uh, decriminalized beating your wife. It decriminalized domestic abuse. So when that's the climate in some countries, how much are they into the good feelings of Wonder Woman and what that represents, you know? And Wonder Woman was good on its own merits besides the female lead thing. It was inspiring for other reasons, but I just... That thing of, okay, we're going to take a black lead and we're going to sell them all over the world when they've always been so scared to do that is... I, I was feeling like, please... God, let this happen. <laughs> let this be good and let it be good enough to put the naysayers in their place. That's what I needed for it. And it's really hard to watch a movie when you you got that kind of uh, a thing going on, you know, mm-hmm. for the larger scope of what it is in the entertainment industry to be black and to have black people in film. Um, but I tried to remind myself I was allowed not to like it anyway. And that's why I can say it's still real good. <laughs> it's still real good. And I, I think I managed to do that. I walked into the theater and I said, okay, but be honest with yourself. You know, at the end of the day, you got to be honest um, for this to have value, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I thought it was really good. And we can talk about why, but I've already run out of the mouth a lot about it. What, what did you think about it? I thought it was really good. I think it's, it's disappointing where my expectations were so heightened and I was so excited for it. And I need to see it again. Because I feel like I need to go in with, like, you know, less excited. Um, I stopped I did, watching trailers months ago. I couldn't do it. Right. And I was watching them all the time. Um, I did really enjoy it. And there were moments that really gave me chills. Um, but I feel like I, I – I don't know if disappointed is the right word. Um, it was hard for it to live up to the hype I had in my head. Um, but I – like, watching it, just like, oh, no, this is a really good movie. And I also really liked that it was different – than most Marvel movies. It mm-hmm. got to be really its own thing. And that's not just because of, you know, oh, hey, look, this is a primarily black cast. It's also that T'Challa as a person outside of his blackness is a different kind of superhero, which is a really cool thing. Once again, you can give a lot of credit to Christopher Priest for. Let's watch a king. And then when you tie in the fact that, no, this is a black king, this is an African king raised outside the touch of imperialism, (laughs) then we start to get to, uh, you know, to deal with some bigger ideas and and feelings. Chadwick Boseman does a really good job with him. Yes, he does. He plays the status so well. Everybody's talking about Michael B. Jordan, and honestly, look, I think Michael B. Jordan does a great job in this film. I think he— I think he does a really good job, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know you do. (laughs) Michael Jordan looks good, folks. Um, but Michael B. Jordan, I feel like he had a character that, I mean, for being a Marvel villain, like, okay, he is up against something there because you don't expect him to be as good as he is. Yeah, and I liked him as a Marvel villain more than most. Oh, so much more than most. So much more compelling than most. And I think he managed to do that despite some of the writing. I think uh, a lot of times for him, uh, the story was there to support him, and conceptually what was behind his words was really engaging and interesting and powerful. Right. But the 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 beauty of the language wasn't always there, and I thought he outperformed the text he was given. So a lot of credit to him for that. I also actually, as far as Killmonger, his character was, I think they actually felt they had to make him more evil, like make him an obvious bad guy, and I would have preferred him to be more compelling in the way that he wasn't like they there there are some points in the movie where you're like that's an evil man 
Um, and you could have done with him being a bit more sympathetic. Yeah, or I would have been more interested in him. I mean, he's already so attractive. Can we make him more sympathetic emotionally too? Would that kill you? <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I was going to say that I think uh, in a way that it, even though I said his text wasn't as good as his acting of it was, um, in a way because of the kind of character he was playing and how the audience does want to get behind somebody who is a super villain embodiment of the black power movement and the most most militant aspect of it, uh, T'Challa had to play a black king, an ideal black king. And, and the weight of that on his shoulders, I thought Chadwick Boseman did such a good job. He is a king, and he's a king that is a real human person while still being inherently noble and raised to, to be good and powerful at the same time. And to have a vision of a black man like that, that's part of that whole Afro-futurist goal. Can we reimagine this? Can we imagine mm -hmm. that for ourselves and see it and then be it? I thought he had that on his back and he was living up to it. Right. He does that in Civil War, too, though. He does. He does. Um, also, I want to talk about the representation of women in this film. Mm. Um, and so much better than I can't think of another Marvel movie that has represented women so well. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's uh, like, I mean. The general his, uh, is a woman, his lead general, uh, his... Multiple members of the, of the high council. Are women. His sister is a tech genius. Uh, his ex-girlfriend is a badass spy. His mother holds her own. It, it just... Um, and like thinking back on other Marvel movies and just how these women were also not even questioned. They're just there. And he treats them as equals with that, respect. Well, equals in the sense that he's the king. But he respects what they're saying. Oh, yeah. It, and it's, it's and like you said, without question, it's just taken for granted. They're just woven into the um, story. I was thinking of N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy where actually I didn't realize that it had all been women. Until afterwards, where when she, in the, we talk about this in our another podcast, where you realize that all the important decisions are being made by women in the books, and this isn't quite the same. But walking out and later realizing, oh my goodness, the women were just everywhere and integral to every plot line. Mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty cool. And I can't believe it's taken Marvel ten years to do this. Yeah, and I think it happens in a way that it's not. It's um, not shoved down your throat at all. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think. I didn't I didn't think so either. Um, who is your favorite character? You do yours first. I'll let you think. Thank um, you. My favorite character was Shuri, who was played by Letitia Wright. Um, she is Black Panther's younger sister. She is also a tech genius. She's a good fighter. She's sassy. She's <laughs> smart. I also love the actress. I just went through this uh, YouTube spiral of watching interviews with her while I was doing my quote-unquote research for this podcast. And even though Claire had already seen them, she wanted to watch them as a pick-me-up, like pep-up, so <laughs> before great. doing the episode. But anyway, I feel like her character, this like smart, capable um, fun teenager um, is not something you see a lot, actually. Young girl, you know what I mean? It was just wonderful and refreshing. Um, do you know yours now? I can say that my favorite scenes had Killmonger in them, and one of my favorite uh, performances is the father of Killmonger, uh, Najobu, who's played by uh, Sterling K. Brown. Sterling K. Brown. Um, but that at the end of the day, I'm really most impressed with how uh, T'Challa 
was portrayed by Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman. Um, th- that's a lot that he had to carry on his shoulders. That, I feel like the main character doesn't normally get to be your favorite. I mean, sometimes it gets to be your favorite character. But a lot of times, for me especially, I'm more interested in the side character. So good for Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, yeah. And um, something that's really cool about his character that I want to I talk about, too, before we close is the way he's part of dealing with in the movie this idea of, well, what do people like T'Challa and <laughs> people like the Wakandans who haven't been touched by imperialism, uh, haven't been touched by slavery, people who have somehow made it through without being um, completely degraded by those things, what do they owe everyone? Haven't been touched by colonization. Haven't been touched by colonization. What do they owe everybody else? What do they owe everybody that's like them that could have been like them if it were not for a quirk of history? Um, and that's something that's brought up in a really cool way in an article in The Atlantic by uh, Van E. Newkirk II. Van R. Newkirk II. Van R. Newkirk II in his article, The Provocation and Power of Black Panther, because it's something that the movie is, in a way, challenging its audience with. It's uh, Ryan Coogler reaching the community in more ways than being a doctor. Yeah, it is. It is. And what sounds like a silly statement turns out not to be at all if that student is Ryan Coogler. And he's putting those ideas out there in the mainstream. So Black Panther, we recommend it for everyone? Everyone. Because it's a great work of Afrofuturism. And everyone deals with being other. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at along with Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. You can find me on Twitter at James Foey Jr. That's James F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find our other third, Kyle Willoughby, at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. You can learn more about Black Panther on our Twitter and our Facebook page where we'll be posting some articles that we talked about here. Our producer, who is being a real champ today um, and also hosting, is James Foey. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.